Well, good evening, everybody. Saw some of the comments during worship. Um, the dreariness and maybe the weight of the world is upon a lot of you, and uh, just want to be sensitive to that and pray that God speaks to your heart tonight and brings comfort because that's what He does. Every time we get in His presence and sing to Him, as we talked about that last Sunday a little bit, um, and midweek for me is one of the greatest times uh, to get close to the Lord, not just on Sundays. This midweek study really, um, I don't know, it gives you that second wind you need for the last two days, you know, well, three, if you work six days a week or whatever. But So I'm praying that God blesses you tonight. I was blessed in the study time. We're going to go through chapter uh, uh, 24 and, and, and to verse 22. Okay, we're going to cut that chapter in half. Uh, chapter 25, we're going to cut in half, so we'll stop there. So when you see me, I say that because when you see me start chapter 25, I don't want to see that, you know, <laughs> I'm so tired. I've already fallen asleep three times during 24. Know that the end is near, okay? Uh, verse 22. So let's pray and we'll get into God's beautiful word, which is really kind of the, the thrust of the study tonight, his beautiful word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you've written it, given it to us. Um, you've magnified it above your name. Uh, we don't have to and shouldn't go beyond it. It is our boundary to, for our faith. It tells us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Uh, it tells us all the knowledge of you that we'll ever need. It is complete. It is perfect. And we get to study it tonight. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit would use your sword. Uh, in our lives, and cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. Be a discerner of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word is precious, and every time I study and get a little bit further, deeper into a certain section, it just becomes more precious. Um, um, and and tonight, tonight, in these two or one and a half chapters, I think you'll see that. It begins in chapter 24, verse 1. Now he, God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote, that's the first time we see that in Scripture, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. God is called up, Moses first, a couple other guys can come a little closer, and the rest need to stay a little further back, which should remind us so much of what Christ did. That Mount of Transfiguration, that's what I see, that's what reminds me of, as the rest of the guys were there, um, but he brought the three up with him. And, and we'll read that here. It's in chapter uh, 17 of Matthew, verses 1 through 8. Now, after six days, Jesus had just six days ago said, I'm going to show you my glory. You're going to see my glory. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, very similar to what we're, what we're reading. And he was transfigured before them. 
In other words, they didn't see Jesus like they normally did in front of their fire or while they were walking or, or whatever. They saw him as he is in heaven, okay? Bright, okay? Beautiful, shining. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So literally changes his countenance. Totally different. Amazing vision for these three guys to see. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That's correct. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. And that's exactly what's happening here with Moses. Now, I don't want to ruin the chapter, but these guys are going to see God when they get up there. And nobody can see God, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So, who are they seeing here as we get this moment on top of this mountain? Who is being transfigured before them? Who is the expressed image of God? Who is being seen here on top of the mountain? It's Jesus. And Second Peter, much later, after the transfiguration, in fact, that transfiguration uh, moment where Peter got to see that and gets excited about making tents for everybody. We should all stay up here and never go away. You know, who wouldn't want that? So I understand Peter. He's told at the, at the moment, don't, don't tell anybody what you saw up here. Can you imagine having that experience, seeing Jesus transfigured in front of your eyes, his glory, his majesty, like he, this is what we're going to see in heaven. They got a glimpse into it, and they says, and by the way, you can't tell anybody about it. Are you kidding me? That's all I would do is tell everybody about it, but he says you can't. And so this is the importance, I think, of tonight's teaching is the next cross-reference I'm going to read to you. So it's really the thrust of it. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. Peter writing to the church much later, still not able to really uh, describe what he saw, describes what he saw and how it affected him. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, so you know what he's talking about. And we heard this voice in which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And here's the effect and so important for us to know as Christians. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Do you understand that the prophetic word didn't point to the transfiguration? But God made sure that Peter understood that the transfiguration pointed to the word. The transfiguration, the moment, the experience with Jesus Christ in all of, its, all of his glory and the shining and all that, only confirmed one thing, that the word of God is true. It, the experienced, proved God's word, not the other way around. In a world where experiencing Jesus seems to be priority in the church in a lot of places over God's word, 
We see here that Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. I'm only showing you this so that you understand that what I'm telling you, what I'm saying to you is is true. It's absolutely valid. It's confirmed just by you seeing me in this glorified state. The very word that we hold in our hands is what Moses wrote down and said so in this chapter 24. We're holding the word of God, which the transfiguration, the glory of Jesus was meant to point us to this. We're holding in our hands something more valuable than the experience that Peter had on top of that mountain. We just really have to let that sink into our hearts. And so he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is, the gospel is, the word of God is, the only light that shines in this world. And we have it in our hands, and we study it Wednesdays and Sundays. Be careful that we never get tired of it, that we never move away from it for experience. Because anytime there's an experience, healing, miracle, transfiguration, it's always pointing people so that they understand that what I'm saying to you is true. What I'm telling you, the word, is true. Now, back to chapter 24. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, this is verse 5, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, there it is written, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, after hearing the word of God, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these works, all these words, excuse me. We forget, I think, I do sometimes, and Satan is trying to conceal that our covenant is a blood covenant with God. The covenant that we have, whether old or new, is a blood covenant, and blood represents death. We, it's never been more clear to me now, and it should be clear to us all the time. You know the Romans Road that we all probably memorized, or at least you know, or you can look it up. If you don't know it, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. Um, there's lots of ways to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Romans Road is a popular one takes you through several scriptures in Romans that describes your your need for a Savior, what God has done, and how you can be saved. It's a very simple Romans road to salvation. Okay, it's called that, and you can look it up, Google it, whatever. One of the scriptures in that Romans road is John, well, let me, Romans, excuse me, um, verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 23, and it says this, it's, it's one of the most important ones, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The sentence of death, the understanding that we have a sentence of death over us because of our sin is the most important thing that we can know and must know before we become Christians. The world, Satan, is trying to get rid of that. Don't guilt me. Don't judge me. Don't make me feel bad. And trying to have a relationship with the true and living God without that verse. When God clearly shows us, not only in chapter 24, but in the New Covenant, the New Testament also, that we have a covenant of blood. 
Animals had to be sacrificed. It's sprinkled on the altar showing that that's the cleansing that has to take place. The people then respond, I believe everything you've ever said to me about God's word, everything you just read, Moses, I believe. And so that means that like the altar sprinkled with blood, now you are sprinkled with that same blood, the blood that covers over your sin, you see. Now, maybe it gets complicated. Maybe it's hard to understand. It is very simple. The wages of sin is death. Sin requires a blood sacrifice, requires death of the person. In the Old Testament, the person would pass their sins onto the animal. Symbolically, the animal would be killed, representing them. That's me dying because of my sin. And they were supposed to recognize that. And every dead animal throughout the Old Testament until Christ was to prove that and show that and remind people that we have a blood covenant with God. And so when John saw Jesus coming, saw his cousin He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The blood covenant is going to come to pass through this man right here. It's going to wash away the sins of the world. And that's what John 3.16 is so powerful. For God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. It hadn't been done until now. It hadn't happened until Jesus died on the cross. That's the importance of it. And so the blood covenant is something we need to remember. You cannot erase sin or call sin not sin anymore. Otherwise, the wages of sin isn't death. Christ didn't need to die on the cross. I mean, it absolutely neutralizes Christianity. There's no reason for it. We are following cunningly devised fables then. The wages of sin is death. Everybody has to know that. I have to know that. You have to know that. And there's a lot of people sitting in churches, and I never want to think that we're one of those people or groups that doesn't have anybody like that, that has not maybe come to that conclusion in their life. I've always gone to church. I'm just going to this new church now. Well, fine. At your old church, did they tell you that you are a sinner? Did they lead you to the cross because of your sin and the guilt and the punishment that's waiting for you because the wages of your sin is death? And the reason you come to Christ is not because it's a better philosophy than the others out there or a happier group of people or someone shook my hand at the door or they play the right music at the right tempo and speed, but I go and worship God at church because Christ died on the cross for my sins because my The wages that I had earned was my death. But Christ took that for me. He died instead of me. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. We all have to know that. It's our baseline for Christianity. And those that don't believe that, honestly, aren't Christians. You don't have a relationship with Christ, which means Savior. Savior from what, then? Savior from our sins. From the wages of our sins, actually. So the blood covenant is started with the people. They're all sprinkled with blood. They understood what that meant. It's the most serious of covenants. Verse 9, then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. 
But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. We talked about this earlier. I told you I'd hit on this. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus is the expressed image of God. So anytime anybody claims to have seen God in the Old Testament, whether that's Joshua with the uh, you know, army commander, which is Jesus, whether that's the burning bush, whether this, this moment right here, it's Jesus in the Old Testament. That's Jesus. That's who they saw, the expressed image of God. He's always been, always is. I think that's interesting. There's, and this is, the, you know, doesn't matter, but that he's standing on all this blue sapphire, you know, which is supposed to represent in its clarity the heavens, the blue sky. So he, he's standing on top of symbolically this blue sky. So we ever wonder, why is this sky blue of all colors, you know? Well, that's because it's either one or the other. Either the sapphire was supposed to show us the blue sky and that Jesus is above it, you know, or the blue sky is to remind us of this moment right here that they were standing on sapphire. So every time we look up, we say, we're looking at the underside of the floor. You know, I don't know which way it is, but it's all, well, it's all beautiful. And there's, oh, it's amazing. It's so clear. Such a beautiful clarity. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, and be there. I think that's interesting, but that's a different, probably a whole Bible study in and of itself. You know, come up on the mountain, and I want you to be here. You know? If you're going to come to the presence of the Lord, be there. You know? If you're going to have your quiet time with God, be there. Don't let your mind wander. Don't let it go someplace else. Be there in the presence of God. You know? And that takes discipline. Because I am the first one. I am that kid in school that would stare out the windows. What? What did you say? And I do that in my quiet time, too. Where was I? You know? What were we talking about, God? I mean, how rude. <laughs> you, know? you think looking at your phone's rude when you're talking to somebody? I could do that without a phone all through grade school. The, the window was my phone. What did you? What? Oh, Mrs. Polson, what did you say? My third grade teacher. I don't remember. What were you talking about? Be there. So he says that. Come up. Come up and be there. He says, um, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written, that you may teach them. I'm giving you these Ten Commandments to teach them. I'm writing them down so that you can teach them. I want you to be able to see them, and then I want you to teach them. We're called to teach the Word of God to those around us. Teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua. There he is. I like Joshua, like I like David. And I don't like Moses, but Joshua, I like, I don't know. And Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. He's going to regret that. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, just like what we read in the Transfiguration. Here's this cloud. Now, this cloud comes over. The guys are going up into it. Joshua doesn't technically go all the way into the cloud with Moses. He goes about halfway up. Um, you know, he's learning. He's watching. But Moses is the only one that actually goes into the cloud. But the cloud to the people, this is what I find interesting. It is just a cloud. Moses is fine. God said, come up. It's going to be okay. But for the people, when they're watching this take place, 
Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So the children of Israel watching Moses saying, he's, he's going to go up into that. It's like a furnace. What's he doing? So you can understand why 40 days later they say, we don't even know if this guy's ever coming back. I mean, he walked into that huge fire up there. We haven't seen him for 40 days. I don't think he's coming back. To them, it looked like you're just going to be destroyed if you walked up into that. But that's, that's their perception. That's not reality. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so they're left alone with uh, her and, and Aaron. And now if you don't know the story, they, they decide to make a calf um, and worship it instead, but that's later on. So these are the guys he left in charge. They'll be okay. These guys know what to do. Well, sort of. Chapter 25, 22 verses to go. Ready? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, or blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, which most people think is seal skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all its furnishings, so, or just so you shall make it. I've got some plans for you, some blueprints to give you, and receive this. Now, God is the one who can create something from nothing. We know that. That's how bara, we call that in the, in the, in the Old Testament. God created, and in the beginning, God and he created the heavens and the earth, bara. From nothing he made something. So this stuff is not hard for him to create. He could, you know, blink and there's the Ark of the Covenant, and blink, there's the tent. And he could do that, but he doesn't. And I take note of that. He wants that to come from us. He wants that to come from the people. He wants there to be that interaction through this. And this is a, uh, it isn't a tough thing to teach. It's a beautiful thing to teach. Um, the, the idea of offering to the Lord and not, not tithing, this is offering. Um, you're offering it willingly from your heart to God. Whatever's on your heart, whatever you purpose in your heart, whatever delights your heart, give that to the Lord. If you don't have a happy heart, if there is no delight in it, if it isn't something burning on your heart to do, then don't do it. And maybe that's how that should always be taught instead of the other way around. Instead of saying, you know, if you, were, if you were a good Christian, you'd want to give to God. That's kind of how it's taught. Maybe it should be the other way around. If you don't have a burning heart, a burning desire to give to the Lord, don't. He does not want something that's given grudgingly. That's the last thing the Father wants is something that you feel like you don't want to give, but you have to. There's some times when um, uh, our grandson comes over and and uh, says to Bo, our, our little boy, our youngest, he's nine now, but still, uh, still a little kid. Uh, the grandson will say, Caleb will say, can I take this home with me? One of the toys. And, you know, Jenny and I were like, well, of course you can. Of course you can. And Bo's looking at us going, 
you know? And we try to talk to him about it and say, you know, it's okay. You're going to get it back or he'll get it. He's just taking it home, makes it easier to transition from grandma to grandpa's house to going back home again. It's just something. And then we'll get it back in a few days. But still, Bo, every time's like, that's my toy, you know, kind of thing. And we try to teach him, it's okay. You know, have a happy heart. You know, have a happy heart. But the, what I see in him is just a little bit of grudging, you know? That's my toy. And he's right. It is. We gave it to him for a birthday present. It, it's not us to give away his stuff. I understand that. But, you know, trying to teach him, man, does God our Father not want us to have that heart when it comes to offering to him back what he's given to us? He doesn't want us to say, you know? And that's one of the reasons we don't pass a plate or a bag or something it's not that that's wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I don't ever want to be prideful of the fact that we don't pass a plate. Well, maybe we ought to pass a plate then if we're prideful about it. No, we don't do it because you, you never want the pressure to be there. That someone may instinctively just reach for their wallet as they pass the plate by, I don't want to give any money. I don't want to do that. Because their heart's just not there yet to where there's a burning desire in their heart to give to the Lord. It's just not there yet, and that's okay. It, it takes a while for that to develop. In fact, I believe a lot of times that's the last stronghold for a lot of people. I'll give you my sin. <laughs> I'll receive that forgiveness. I'll, I'll listen to this, and I'll do that, and I'll have my quiet time, and I'll do that. Isn't that offering? You know? <laughs> or purse? You know, I don't know. It's like the last thing. And God sees that, and he is not poor. He's not going, well, I guess I don't have to eat today. God is not concerned about his well-being or his house or his people. It's all going to be good, whether you give or not. But make no mistake about it, that is an area that he wants to work on in everybody's life and get to that place where there is that burning desire. And I don't mean to bring it around to that. I was trying to avoid it. But it is a place where... You just want to, you just, you've got to, I've got to. It's a, it is truly a worshipful experience for you. If it's not, then don't. Wait till it becomes a worshipful experience to you, you know, and then thoroughly enjoy it and trust the Lord. It's just a wonderful thing when you get there, when, when, the, when you're at, at that place, you know. Um, anyway, that's what he says. I want you to receive an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. So I don't want you shaking down the people, Moses. You know, let him do it. And here's what I need, you know, from you guys. And he gives them. Now, remember, these folks just came out of Egypt. They're flush. Remember, they took everything with them out of Egypt, all the gold, all the city. They just went up to their neighbor and said, can I have all your silverware? And they said, take it. Just get out of here. No more flies and frogs, you know. So they're flush. And so they're like, oh, yes. And so they start to pile this stuff on. And later on, we're going to see that God says, tell the people that's enough. Or Moses tells them, that's enough. No more. You know, we've got too much already. Had to stop them from that burning heart, that desire to give to the Lord. So um, beautiful thing. So he tells them that. Now, the cross-reference, of course, I think it's, you're obligated to read this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, because it doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's the same God. He says, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's the same heart. It's the same Father. 
I don't want to make people back then, and I don't want to make people now. It's got to be a personal thing. It's you. It's between you and him. Okay. Verse 10. And they, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and, uh, and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So if you go to your official Calvary Chapel Bible, there's a, there's a little note on the other side that gives you the dimensions, everything, and feet. So the ark is actually 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, 2.25 feet high. Now, a cubit was kind of a funny thing that would measure from your elbow to the tip of your uh, middle finger there. So that's a cubit. So we guessed at about 18 inches, but you know, if you were a tall guy, well, you had a 20 inch cubit, you know, if you were a short kid, you had a, you had a 16 inch cubit. So it varied, but you know, whoever was in charge at the time, they'd measure the king and say, Oh, looks like a cubit short this year. Anyway. So that's where we get these things, these cubits. You shall overlay it no matter what the size with pure gold inside and out, you shall overlay it and shall make it or make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, uh, put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. Uh, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and then you shall put the poles through those rings on the side of the ark, and that's how it's going to be carried, it says. So the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I gave you. So once they make that connection, don't ever store it someplace else, leave the poles in it, and that's how we'll carry it, the four priests on their, on their shoulders. And so that's how they would carry the ark around. It's gold for a reason. Gold is the metal of deity. Not because they wanted it to be rich or wealthy, but because it was rare and valuable. And, and so obviously for God, his chair, it's his seat, um, it's his throne. You want it to be uh, of quality like that. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. Now that's the top. So you got the box with the four uh, rings in the poles. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and two and a half cubits shall be its length, and obviously the dimensions are so it fits on top. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them uh, at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, the box, and in the ark you shall put what? What's the first thing that goes in and really the most important thing? The testimony, the word. In this judgment seat, on this mercy seat, they're both connected, the same thing. What goes into it is the word of God. That's how important it is. That's how big a deal it is. Put the testimony in it that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything, which I will give you in commandment, to the children of Israel. You are making my chair. He's just letting them know what this is. It isn't just a box that holds a really neat, you know, two tablets of stone. Um, this is my chair where I'm going to judge you from. When the Shekinah glory comes down and they fills the tabernacle, so the tents made, however that looked, um, still don't understand whether there was a pitch on it or not. I'm still researching that. But anyway, you got the tent made and you've got the holy place and the holy of holies, which we'll talk about as we go through this. You've got this Ark of the Covenant, 
Eventually, when it's all furnished and done and set up, God comes down and sits on it in the Shekinah glory. You could see this pillar of light and shining everywhere coming out of the sea. He fills it, you know. Um, that's where I'm going to sit. And he reminds him of that, the mercy seat. And I'm going to give you all the commandments. Now, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. Throughout this chapter and a half, we've seen the word. Um, it says this in Psalm 138, verse 20. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. He puts his word above the name of Christ, above the name of God, the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. He puts the word of God. What I say is far more important than knowing my name. I want you to be doers of my word, not hearers only. Don't profess to be a Christian and then not do what I've told you to do. We are warned so many times in the New Testament about people who say, I'm a Christian, and then we find out later on that they say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. The, the Defining the difference between uh, enter in to the glory and depart from me is you're a worker of iniquity. You don't do what I told you to do. You can't say that you love me and not do my commandments. You can't say that you're a Christian and not believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. You can't be a Christian and say that I, he's not the only way to heaven. You can't be a Christian and say those things. It's so important we understand how important this book is that we have. And some that would, that would you know, you've got your... I wouldn't call them haters, but doubters maybe, uh, about the word of God, where did it come from, and men, and all that. Okay, so so suppose you're right, and the word of God isn't all the word of God, or this doesn't contain half of its good, the red letters only, or whatever it is that their philosophy is. How did you come up with which words to believe? What is your criteria to go through this book and be its judge and decide this is God's word, but this isn't God's word? I just want to know that from you. Since you've made that statement that this isn't the word of God, how do you know what is and what isn't? What is your criteria? They don't have an answer for that, ever. If they do, they'll say, because I just don't feel, uh, okay. And that's when you get into relativism. You feel that's the word of God. You don't feel that's the word of God. You feel it's kind of the word of God. Everybody's got their own truth now. And there is no truth then. Because truth is absolute, or it isn't truth. And so if you divide this up, like Satan tries to do, like enlightened Christians, that's they really believe that they're higher than you, above you, they know more than you. Ask them those simple questions. So which? how do you know that this is not true? And how do you know that this is true? Why do you believe in Jesus at all? Because the only way you know about the name of Jesus is through this book. You would never come to a relationship with Jesus Christ outside of reading this book here. There aren't any other books that talk about him and what he's done and a reason to have a relationship with him except here. You've become what you say a Christian based off of what you've read in this book. And now you say it's not all the word of God, that it's not all true. It is either all true or none of it. And we need to believe that in our own hearts first before we can actually stand up and defend what we believe. <laughs> We've got to believe it. I mean, that goes without saying, right? 
Well, and sometimes we don't think it all the way through. It sounds okay. It almost sounds enlightened. Well, that's that's pretty cool to be kind of accepting of all things. And I, I just think that's great, man. And I don't mean to do that, but that's what it sounds like a lot of times. Man, you, you, you worship the way you worship, and I'm going to worship the way I worship. Well, you know what? There's a bunch of people in the Bible that worship just like you're talking about, and they're in hell. Oh, we're just worshiping Moloch, man, throwing our babies up there. It's cool. No, it isn't, and you'll be held accountable for it. Oh, man, we're just worshiping, you know, ourselves. Yep, yep, that's not good either. That's going to sentence you to hell also. It's so basic, and it's so comprehensive, and it's so simple. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. God saw us and made us. We ruined it, broke it, sinned against him, did our own will instead of his will. That's basically what sin is. Don't eat the fruit. We're going to eat the fruit. Our will over his. We decided to be our own God at that point, which is sin. You've separated yourself from God at that point. And God, seeing the problem, said, I need to come up with a solution and already had before the foundations of the world, I know, but sent his son Jesus to take our place. You've earned death. You've earned a place apart from me forever, hell, burning, constant. I've got to figure out how to not let you go there before I make you, because I know what you're going to do. And he sends his son Jesus to make sure that we have a way He's not going to force us, but there is another choice you can make later on. You've chosen the fruit, but I can also throw you a lifeline, the red cord, hang in the window of um, the prostitute there at Jericho, the red cord, here's your way out, here's your way to get back in. Believe on Jesus who died for the sins of the world. It's very simple understanding. God didn't provide lots of ways. Now, I don't want you to, you know, I'm not so closed-minded that I think there's one. One way is enough. How many ways of escape, how many ways of salvation do we need? Drowning in the middle of the ocean, you don't complain about what kind of helicopter's coming or whether it's a boat. That's kind of hoping to go on a flight. I'm going to tread a little longer until that helicopter comes. Uh, there isn't one coming. It's just a boat. That's what we sent. Boat. It's, this is the Coast Guard. We're here to save you. Oh, man, a boat? Is there another way? Get in the boat, you know? Why does there have to be another way? That's the question. Why can't you come to Jesus? Why won't you come to Jesus? Why isn't the way that God provided for you okay? Why isn't it accepted? Because it requires me to call my sin, sin. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 3. The only reason people don't come to Christ is because of their sin. I will not give it up. I won't call it what it is. I won't repent of it. Therefore, you can't get in the boat because you love your sin more. I love the water and the death that it's going to bring more than I love the boat that God sent for salvation. People look for other ways to heaven because Jesus requires repentance and forgiveness. And they will not have this man rule over them. It's very simple. Last cross-reference, I believe. John chapter 12, verse 48 through 50. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, 
what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus, the Son of God, will not go beyond what God says to him. I don't know why we think that we can go beyond what God has said to us. I guess this is the last cross-reference. I actually have two. I added one, Aaron. Sorry. Going along with that, John chapter 8, verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus, the Son of God, never goes beyond what's written. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. You knew I was heading there probably. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. See, Paul got it. The Son of God doesn't go beyond what's written. Certainly, we can't go beyond what's written. And he tries to teach that, that they would learn that, and that they would watch Paul walk that way. I don't go beyond what's written. I stay within the bounds of Scripture because they're complete and perfect and there are boundaries for a reason. And he trusts that, and we should too. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. You want us to understand who you are. You want us to understand these things about you. Um, You want to sit and reason with us within your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together to study it, to read it, to let it come into our lives. Um, This truth, this beautiful truth you've given to us, We thank you for it, God. We pray that you'd help us to always hold on to it, never to be a complainer about it, that we'd never say, oh, we'd load this worthless bread. It's not worthless. It's everything. And the more we study and the more we submit to it and the more we just uh, uh, memorize it and get it into our hearts, the, the more beautiful our life becomes, Lord. The deeper our worship becomes of you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the kids. They got the word of God, your word tonight also. And we pray that you keep it in their little hearts too, uh, and that they'd be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a, a good rest of the week.